Welcome to the Consumed Church Weekly Podcast. Thank you for joining us. We hope you enjoyed today's message, Unpunishable, Part 3 of the Blessed Life series by Pastor John. For any further information about this series or the ministries of Consumed Church, you can check us out at theconsumedchurch.com. How are you? Yeah, did everyone recover? Did I hit anybody in the eye with a rubber duck last week? (laughs) Sorry, not sorry. (laughs) Who had fun last week? (laughs) If I was a professional preacher, that might be career suicide. (laughs) Uh, I'd rather just be a humble servant. But I hope you understood that my point was that I think our biggest fight is with religious spirits. The spirit of religion is just such a um, boundary to what God's trying to do. And that's not an excuse to be weird, but sometimes it's okay to be a little weird just to run uh, the spirit of religion right out the door. Is anybody okay with that? And And then we had some fun too. And so I, I don't know if it went exactly how I was thinking. I wasn't sure what was going to happen. But we've had just an amazing encounter with the Holy Spirit uh, pretty regularly at our home group. And I think that has a lot to do with the vulnerability, uh, with the growing in God together. Now, this is why I think home groups are really important to be plugged in and be a part uh, of the body in such a way that you're real with one another and you can experience and express uh, love to God on another level. So it, it just... It's so wonderful to, to be able to do that, to step in. I think sometimes people uh, look at the uh, outpouring of the Holy Spirit, maybe a revival service or um, you know, some of the extreme manifestations of the Holy Spirit as if God just seizes the room and starts to shake everybody like a ragdoll. Uh, and I think that that does happen sometimes. But I think that there's also a legitimate expression that we can have with our hearts as we actually are opened up to the reality of who He is, and we see Him, and out of appreciation for who He is, we begin to exuberantly give Him a sacrifice of praise and of joy that we choose to be joyful. And so that's what that's all about. So I left joy on the wall, just in case anybody needs to see that, anybody needs to be reminded. But I'm just going to warn you, so we've been going through the Beatitudes, and we've been... Um, revealing the understanding of the message of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom that Jesus came preaching. And when he opened up his first sermon, Sermon on the Mount, he started with the Beatitudes. And so we've gone through the Beatitudes. Uh, Last week's message was about uh, blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. And I hope that the overwhelming message that was communicated was that God has a blessing on our appetite to be able to receive Him. That it's actually governed by our hunger and not by His pouring out. Does that make sense? And so, again, I don't want to lose that reality this morning that as we go into the next blessed statement from Jesus, the next uh, pronouncement of this is the way it works in the kingdom of God, uh, 
that we have the understanding that you can have as much or as little as you want, that he's actually given you the governor. Contrary to popular belief that God just steps in and overrides what's going on in your life. Not that he won't, but that's typically not how he operates. Because he's made you powerful. Do you believe that? Yes. Come on. So one time I smashed my thumb real good. Has anybody ever smashed their thumb to where that, <laughs> or maybe a toenail to where it turns purple and it's just throbbing and you're just like, oh my gosh, this hurts so bad. I did that at work once. I had a 14 pound sledgehammer made just for me with a short handle and I slipped. I have this shoulder problem and my shoulder, it does that every now and then. It did that and I hit my thumb and man, that thing got so big and it was a Friday, and we had a graduation to go to. So I was at the house. I hear people say, well, drill a hole in it. And I've never been able to drill a hole in a nail. I just, it hurts so bad, you barely touch it. And I'm over there with a drill. I'm like, oh, it's excruciating. And I, and I heard you could take a needle, and I put a needle on, a, on, a, yeah, on the stove and tried to get it red hot, you know, because I went to the doctor, and they said, did it happen at work? And I said, well, yeah. They said, sorry, we can't touch it. I was like, no, it didn't happen at work. <laughs> Can I go back and change my story? Like, please pop this thing. They said, no, but go home and pop it with a hot needle. So anyways, I had to wait till uh, the urgent care opened up, I think, uh, Saturday morning. I went all night with this thing just boom, 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 pounding. I was dying, agony and pain. And uh, when that doctor came out, they had this little tool. and It, was, it looked like a, a gun, but it had a... Um, um, a point on it is basically a, a needle, um, but it was an electrode that when you'd squeeze it, it got hot, you know, red hot. And boy, I just barely just touched it and blood spurted out. And it felt so good. I could have kissed that guy. I mean, I, I told him too. <laughs> I was like, can I kiss you? No. I, I was like, I can't believe how good that feels. So this morning... I'm just warning you that most of you have something that's pounding and the word of the Lord is like that gun. And it's going to feel a lot better when we're done. Last week we had a bunch of fun and I think this could be fun, but in a different way. Because <laughs> as we move to the subject matter uh, in your Bible, the text for today is Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes and verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. I didn't really put much forethought into the Beatitudes um, prior to the Lord telling me, yeah, you're going to do the Beatitudes. And the first week that I did it, I thought I was just going to talk about all the Beatitudes in one shot. And the Lord said, oh, no, that's not what we're doing. And the first subject matter, the first week that I tackled this was um, being poor in spirit. And man, there was some fear and trembling in me because it just seems like it's a subject matter that nobody wants to talk about. And I thought, well, okay, I'll lump the rest of them together. And he said, nope, we're going one at a time. So here we are. Uh, last week I got through that. You know, it, it seems like for a charismatic preacher, uh, it, it seems like the Super Bowl to get to preach a message about you will be filled. <laughs> So I had high expectations of the Holy Spirit uh, wrecking people. And some of you guys got really filled with the Holy Spirit last week, and that was great. Um, but the, it's all about the righteousness. 
Those that hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. And so I love how the Beatitudes kind of build on one another. Some of us have this thing about righteousness that we believe that, uh, yes, Christ is our righteousness, that we receive the righteousness of Christ as he took our sin upon himself. There was that great exchange. But I think we can be a little delusional in thinking that that's just written in a book somewhere and that it has no impact on our life. And rather instead be a victim to the things in life and just continue to put up with baggage that we drag around. And yet in the kingdom of God, Jesus said, those who hunger and thirst for it, that actually want it, can have as much as they could possibly lay hold of. And so that that word righteousness, I talked about uh, justification and justice. So justice and reconciliation and mercy and righteousness, all those words are kind of tied together around this subject matter of being right, being right with God, of stuff being the way it's supposed to be. So the name of today's message is unpunishable. Breaking up with punishment. And I got a whole lot of Danny Silk in here because he wrote a book that was called Unpunishable. Does anybody know who Danny Silk is? He wrote, he wrote a book called Unpunishable and uh, his subtitle was Ending Our Love Affair with Punishment. And so with fear and trembling, I'm approaching this subject matter because it really is all about this idea of blessed, there's this gift from God that is the forgiveness of God, that is the mercy of God, that is fluid. It's, it's um, one that we live in this bubble of forgiveness and that the Lord actually had the audacity to say that it's governed by our ability to forgive others, <laughs> to live in a lifestyle of forgiveness. And that's really hard because people do stuff. <laughs> and, and life is messy and it's painful and yet we still have to do business with this statement so it's going to feel really good when we get to the end of this <laughs> Danny refers to uh, this hamster wheel experience of punishment and our addiction to punishment uh, as the punishment paradigm and it's introduced day one in the garden, or at least Genesis chapter 3. So we're going to look at original sin here in a minute. I remember my, my pastor of 20 years, he used to say, before he, he would have a sermon that stepped on your toes a little bit, he'd say, you know you have to forgive me if you want to go to heaven. <laughs> I used to always go, whoop, pull those toes in. <laughs> What are you fixing to say, Pastor? Uh, but that's the subject matter, is this idea of uh, if you will not forgive others, then my Father won't forgive you. I had a... Um, let me start with this. The question is, why do we love punishment so much? You could tell a culture's fascination with punishment by their entertainment. 
We love, we have Splody Night at my house on Monday sometimes. We've got a theater upstairs. That was a gift from God, not something I would have put in, but now we're a little spoiled. But we love Splody movies, and usually in Splody movies, you know, it's where stuff blows up and you get to feel the surround sound. We love that. But most of them uh, revolve around this vengeance idea where there's always a bad guy and the, the good guy is invincible and he bludgeons the, the evildoers in any and every way humanly imaginable. And, uh, and we're addicted to that stuff. I mean, look at the video games uh, that teenagers and young adults and even kids today, training them how to uh, have hearts that long and yearn and thirst for justice and vengeance. But why do we love it so much? So here's where I'm going to mess with your uh, theology a little bit. I'm going to step on some religious toes. In Matthew chapter 9, 12 and 13, the Pharisees are actually approaching Jesus and saying, what's up with you? Why are you hanging out with Pharisees? I mean, with uh, tax collectors and sinners. Verse 12, he says this, when he heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. And this is the important verse. He's telling the religious leaders of the time. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repent. And you think about the message of the gospel of the kingdom of God. What is it? Repent and be baptized. For the kingdom of God is right here. It's all up in your space. God's world and your world are colliding. And everybody needs to repent. Shortly after I got saved, I remember going to uh, Footloose. Anybody remember Footloose? It was a kind of a Christian nightclub or something. It was in a church. Not sure what that was all about. But anyways, they had concerts, Christian concerts there all the time. And uh, I don't remember the particular Christian pop artist, but he was relatively popular. But... He did his songs that were on the radio and stuff, and then he did a sermon, preached a little sermon about repentance, and it just stuck with me from that day. It was one of the first sermons I think I ever remember. I was freshly freshly saved, hair down the air, and uh, mostly going to heavy metal Christian concerts, but this guy wasn't heavy metal. <laughs> but he said repentance is a daily thing, something that you have to do to just keep the slate clean. Because we still live in a fallen world and stuff happens. And if we're not careful, that stuff has a way of affecting us. I should say infecting us. But the thing that amazes me is that Jesus had to tell the custodians of the old covenant, you don't even know what this means. Go figure out what this means. That is our mercy and not sacrifice. You think that the whole religious system is built around this idea of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I'm telling you right now that it was always God's heart to express mercy. That the sacrificial system wasn't about this replacement of you sin, so this thing has to die for me to be happy. It's not about that at all. It's about a way for God to have connection with his kids. So what is repentance? Repentance is all about radically changing the core beliefs, 
motives and goal of our heart. Everybody say goal of our heart. Which is the only thing that produces genuine, lasting transformation in our behavior. A lot of us, when we began following the Lord, we didn't actually learn to reject bad behavior because of its violates ourselves, God, and others. We actually learned how to fear punishment. That's our MO for good behavior is that we're afraid of punishment. And, it, and it's just original sin. So I want to pick on the idea of original sin or talk about original sin. I think there's some doctrines out there that original sin means that you're corrupt, you were just born desperately wicked. And that's not actually the case, and I'm going to prove it to you. <laughs> but what is it? So if that's not it, and you hear me talking about that a lot, I've said that you're, you're not evil, you're not a worm, you're just corruptible. You've been made vulnerable. Because if you weren't vulnerable, you wouldn't know how to trust and love either. It wouldn't be possible. And that's why we have free will. But sin always involves us trying to make the rules, wanting to rule ourselves, be our own God. That's eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's actually idolatry. The Old Testament refers to it as spiritual adultery, <laughs> to put it in strong terms, betraying God by putting someone else in his place, namely ourselves. And that's why it matters that we would know who God is and allow him to be who he is, where he is, and us to understand who we are. Tim Keller says this, sin always begins with the character assassination of God. That's what the serpent talked Eve into in the garden. He's like, man, are you kidding me? Did God really say that? Think about conversations around the water cooler and you talk about your boss. Did he really say that? Tempting you to actually begin to assassinate the character of that other person without actually knowing what their heart's going on, what's going on in their heart. Nobody likes the rule giver. God only had one rule. Don't eat of that tree. If you eat of that, that's going to be a bad deal. You're, you're, that is not good for you. I see in that not a harsh, punishing God, but rather a loving Father, just like we would tell our kids, hey, don't stick your finger in that light socket over there. Not going to turn out good for you. We believe that God has put us in a world of delights, but has determined that he will not give them to us if we obey him. This is the lie of the serpent, the original temptation of Satan to Adam and Eve that brought about the fall. The serpent told the human race that disobeying God was the only way to realize their fullest happiness and potential. And Jesus says, blessed or happy are you, the merciful for they will receive mercy. Disobeying God was the only way to realize their fullest happiness and potential. It's the opposite of what Jesus is declaring with the Beatitudes. And this delusion is sunk deep into every human heart. This is really the fundamental temptation that there has ever been in the world 
and the original sin. Specific details may vary, but the deep heart song of I have to look out for myself is always there. And that's Tim Keller. I have to look out for myself is the motto of self-preservation. Self-preservation is actually the opposite of the gospel. You realize that? So if we preach a gospel, we preach a good news that has in it a promise of us being self-preserved, you're not hearing the gospel right or we're not telling the story right because it's not about self-preservation. Self-preservation is actually original sin. Do I need, anybody need a rubber duck yet? Rubber duck. Oops, sorry, baby. You're so religious. Rubber duck. Oh, <laughs> sorry, Lori. That doesn't mean I think you're religious. I'm just tossing rubber ducks to pop religious spirits that may be in the room. I know it's not you. Don't hear me that way. See, sin brings disintegration of relationship with God, ourselves, others, and creation. We're unable to trust anybody. When we sin, we undergo psychological and spiritual trauma that leaves us feeling unprotected, powerless, and threatened, which in turn produces shame, and shame is the fear of disconnection. That's why so many people, when they have confrontation, they won't take it. They just run and instead build an argument in their mind of how that other person is wrong. That's the opposite of repentance. Repentance is being able to think the best. I love you, darling. She's always like confronted me, even when I was growing in the Lord, when I would get down on somebody's case, she'd say, you don't know that about them. She would tell me, you need to give people the benefit of the doubt, always. She's just preaching the gospel. Whew. Shame is the fear of disconnection. And it has this spiraling effect that begins to lash out and hurt everybody around you. Because we're afraid it's going to happen. We start trying to cover it up. Shame is the intensely painful feeling or experience. Everybody say experience. experience. Of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. This isn't something that God put on anybody. It was a result of the choice, of the choices that we make. That when we violate trust, this escalating fear of disconnection begins to cause all kinds of backlash in our behavior and in our relationships. In this fear, Adam and Eve, they hid rather than repent. They just react, responded poorly to a good father. I actually had most of Genesis 3 in my notes, and I thought it's going to take a long time if I go and start exegeting verse by verse. But if you go back and read the story, this is not a story of an angry God that's upset that they didn't do what he asked them to do, but rather a father that's heartbroken that they, didn't, uh, that they chose disconnection, that they actually allowed someone 
to talk them into believing that he was holding out on them. Look at your neighbor and say, God's not holding out on you. He always has your best interests in mind. And he knows what you need. Father, I ask right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you open the eyes of our heart. Lord, we sang it earlier, but that we would see you rightly. You are magnificent. (laughs) You are wonderful and beautiful, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and open our eyes to who the Father really is. See, Adam and Eve, they hid rather than repent or embrace a confrontation to deal with what they'd actually done. Instead, they began doubling down on their efforts to blame one another, blame God, anything but take responsibility for their action. It wasn't until they sinned that their eyes were opened all right, not to some hidden wisdom that God was holding out on them, but to the fact that stuff was laid bare, naked. And rather than run to a loving father to clean up the mess, they began covering the tracks by sewing together fig leaves, coming up with their own plan. I know we can, we can still get out of this. We can, he'll never know. <laughs> and the Lord doesn't shame them or say anything negative to them. He just says, What's going on? Who told you you were naked? How did you know you were naked? They didn't die on the spot, like in the sense of deteriorating, you know, and turning to dust, like in Raiders of the Lost Ark or something. But they died in this sense that they actually disconnected themselves from the source of life, which is God Himself. In heaven and earth, at that time, we're the same place at the same time. The garden is the place where God and men dwelt together at the same time. And basically, by not owning up to and not dealing with it, that's what caused the separation and actually the resulting uh, disciplinary measures that caused the separation. They chose separation because of the effects of sin. Because of the temptation and then acting upon the temptation. Listening to the voice of the serpent. Buying into the serpent's assassination of God's character rendered them unable to recover a true vision of who he was. Buying into the serpent's assassination of God's character rendered them unable to recover a true vision of who he was. (sighs) I know some people think that God cursed them and he was so offended that they would disobey him that he leveled punishment 
But he actually didn't level punishment. He just stated the the pure and, and simple facts of, wow, I wish you wouldn't have done that. This is going to be really hard for you guys now. And I'm actually protecting you. It's a, it's a father, the, the heart of love of the father that would actually cover and protect them. He made skins for them because now they were going to be outside the garden. They would be in a harsh environment that even the ground would be hard. Childbirth would be hard. Not because God was putting that on us, because that's what they chose by disconnecting themselves from God. So again, we see the story of exile being removed from where they really belong and going to another land just outside the garden. But it was to protect them for their own good because he said, my gosh, now if they have the knowledge of good and evil and they're actually given the opportunity to eat from the tree of life, they'll be stuck like that forever. So it was mercy. Are we seeing, are we getting this idea that God has always been merciful and never about punishment? Only about letting us get what we actually choose. You say, well, what does it look like on down the line? Just one generation later, the birth of religion happens. We need a rubber duck for that. (laughs) Rubber duck for this side. Oh, look out. Brady got the rubber duck. My family members are getting the ducks. We'll talk later. It'll be all right. <laughs> so it begins to manifest itself again in the, in the relationship between Cain and Abel. Sin now is lurking all over the earth, just waiting to grab a hold of somebody. He wasn't born with it. He was born into a world where it was looking for somebody to eat. Does that make sense? So are you. You weren't born evil. Religion enters the scene. Cain and Abel come with offerings trying to approach God in the fallen state in a world where sin rules. They came to God to offer offerings to him. And the Lord is actually really pleased, but not so impressed with Cain. But he was really pleased with Abel's because Abel gave him fat and the firstborn of his stuff. And I think Cain just gave him something out of the field. But anyways, Cain's attitude then becomes bad. And maybe I've shared this before, but it had a lot to do with the fact if you look at uh, the account of Cain and Abel being born, Cain, uh, his name had something to do with being first and being being a blessing. And then Abel, his name meant breath, like this is nothing. So his mom had regard uh, for Cain and not Abel so that you can imagine the dynamic of the sin. So talk about being, I was born in iniquity. It means I was born into a world of iniquity. In other words, my mother had this sin problem where she Instead of repenting, she just doubled down, blamed the serpent, whatever, and pushed that right off onto the kids. Brokenness, disintegration of relationships, inability to see value in Abel. 
But pretty impressed, I made a man with Cain. And Cain had grown up his whole life. He owned land. He had been given the land to till as a farmer. There a lot of uh, prestige came with being a landowner. And Abel was just a goat herder, a wanderer. Somebody wandered around looking after sheep. And for the first time, Cain experienced a threat to his identity because God actually was impressed with what his brother did and not so much with his. It wasn't that God was mean to him. He just didn't really take notice of his offering. And Cain was faced with sin, came to his door. And he felt so threatened that his identity was made up in having his reputation by how his mom had pumped him up. That he was thinking about killing his brother. And isn't that what we do when something gets too close to how we see ourselves? The only response we have is to eliminate the threat. And that's what Cain had in mind for his brother. And the Lord actually gives him an opportunity through his religious practice to get victory over sin. Right? Genesis 4, 6, and 7 says, So Cain said, So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. And here we see that same cycle. If you don't do well, sin is at the door. It's this shame thing when we feel like we're a failure. It actually burns inside of us this horrible feeling that we have to do something with to offload it. And the father is actually interacting with him, even though they're not in the same place at the same time. There's some level of ability to approach God and awareness that God is there. And the Lord warns him and says, hey, look, you, you, this is how you can do it. Don't fall in it. You've got to master this thing. And what does Cain do? He doesn't listen to God. He murders his brother and he does, follows the same path and same pattern as his parents. Sinning, passing blame, not owning up to his actions. Cain is given a choice to change his behavior and repent and enter acceptance and recognition, or reconnection, sorry, enter into reconnection uh, to rule over sin. The cycle of sin starts all over again. Genesis 4.13 says, And Cain said that the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And this is where I did all of that to get to this word punishment. It's the first place we see the word punishment in the Bible. And we need to understand this, that Cain came up with that word, not the Lord. The word punishment there is avon or afwan. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but the Hebrew is avon. And it actually means sin or iniquity, trespass, uh, but it encompasses not just the act itself, but it also it's punishment. It includes like the distorted behavior and the crooked consequences. The hurt people, the broken relationships, the cycle of, of retaliation. That's why when 
he cries out and he says, my punishment is too great for me. See, he had the same problem. He got exiled. He lost his job as a farmer. The ground drank the blood and the ground doesn't even want to cooperate because even the creation rejected him at that point. He lost his job and was confined to being a wanderer because that's what he chose to separate himself. He murdered somebody. He murdered his brother. That his identity, his ability to see himself as number one actually ruled everybody out of his life, including God. And he said, this punishment is too great. It's greater than I can bear. If anybody sees me, they're going to kill me. And again, we see the loving father's response say, no, no, no one's going to kill you. I'll put a mark on you so that people know if they do to you what you did to your brother, they will experience the escalating, spinning out of control effects that sin actually has. That's why God, Jesus came and told everybody to repent because even victims need to repent. We have to purge the venom out of our soul of what's been done to us or else we will in turn let our heart, it starts in our heart, but in turn begin to demask people disconnect from people, wish ill upon people, retaliate against people. It has this escalating effect. And the Lord put on him a mark to warn people, seven times worse will happen. Not a curse, like I'm going to punish you seven times worse. The reality that that's how this thing works. So you're, we're talking two generations into humanity here. So Avon, to punish, uh, the Bible often uses this phrase, but it has everything to do with visiting someone's Avon upon them to let them sit in the consequences of their crooked choices. That's, that's what it means when you see phrases in the Bible says to bear your iniquity, to carry your Avon. It means to, to live with all of that, the, the result of your choices. God actually gives people the dignity of carrying the consequences for their decisions. Cain's perception stemmed from a fear of disconnection and retaliation. And yet, God is so good, He limits His exposure. Huh. So, what does God do with sin? What is His response? That, that would be our perception when we're trapped in it looks like a deterioration of relationships and unable to see who people, especially God, really are. But God's response to sin is two ways. So look at Exodus 34. God has two ways of dealing with it. Exodus 34, verse 6. And this is um, when the children of Israel had been delivered from Egypt and they met at the foot of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and God came out to make a covenant. God so wanted to be with His people. God's heart has always been to pursue after His children, to love us and make a way to make relationship one way or another. 
And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty. God's first response to sin is to to show mercy. Always has been. That's His desire is to... He, he longs for reconnection with us by showing mercy. Problem is he has to do something about it by no means clearing the guilty. So there has to be some way of dealing with that. I've been wondering when to use this story. I, um, I had this recurring dream when I was in my 20s. I'd been saved about five years, was married, uh, starting my family, new to studying the Bible and getting to know God, all that. And... I had this recurring dream that someone would threaten my family and there was a bad guy lurking around the corner. Um, before I had a family, I would always have these dreams of, you know, bludgeoning somebody to death because they were trying to hurt me. Anybody have dreams like that? Has anybody ever had dreams like that? It's just a result of traumatic things in your life that causes that. But it's also kind of the honesty of your heart to deal with this punishment paradigm, and I didn't know what to do with it. As a matter of fact, I, I, I would go to church on Sunday and feel the glory of God and praise the Lord and all that, and my pastor, Pastor Eric. Um, but I would have these dreams, and it was a recurring theme that I would, someone was trying to hurt my family. There was a, a you know, a, a bandit, robber, whatever. And I would brutally with my hands just like murder this person. And the most stressful thing about the dream that bothered me the most wasn't that, well, we watch movies where they do that all day long, right? But the most stressful thing was, what do I do with the body? I was throwing them in dumpsters and throwing them over the side of a hill. And, you know, I didn't know what to do with the body. And the stress of being found out that I had actually murdered this person was the most stressful thing. And guess what? I mean, I was like loving God. I was, you know, Christian, all that. I was afraid to ever tell anybody that I had dreams like that. I mean, it's really, it's messing me up. It was messing with me hard. And I, I went to the pastor. I said, I need a counseling session. And I said, pastor, I'm having these dreams. And I told him that. And he goes, oh, that's easy. He goes, you're probably in a situation where uh, you can't win. You're afraid that if, you know, something is happening to you, but you're afraid if you do something about it, you'll be punished for it. And instantly I knew what it was. But the Lord showed me it was much deeper than this particular instance. But uh, I was at a job where I had been uh, been number one, like, <laughs> and Abel comes along. So this new guy got hired, and they started paying him more than me because he was good too. But I was like, it's not right for him to make more than me when I've been here for three years. And I was afraid if I said something about it, that then it would damage the relationship with my boss, that disconnection would happen. And so the fear of disconnection was eating me up. I didn't know where to dump this punishment paradigm. I didn't know how to deal with it. So instead, at night, I'm you know, bludgeoning bad guys and throwing them in dumpsters. <laughs> as soon as I knew what it was, I, started to, I went to my boss and I said, hey, I need to talk to you. And he let me in his office and I said, I'm having nightmares about throwing people, killing people and throwing them in dumpsters because you won't give me a raise. 
<laughs> That's pretty much what he said. He actually valued our relationship enough, at least professionally anyways, to go, oh, I'm sorry, and gave me a raise. But see, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I used to be pretty, I was pretty buff back in those days. When I'd have a... When I'd ask him to talk, he he I'd close the door behind me and he'd say, Are you fixing to kick my butt? I mean, <laughs> he certainly deserved it, I can tell you that. This guy was a mess. But anyways, he but he valued a connection enough. And believe it or not, that was a, a form of repentance, the two of us getting together and reestablishing connection rather than building this big narrative in my heart and even out loud at the water cooler about how rotten this boss is. You realize a lot of our behavior and stuff that spins out of control like that is basically this punishment paradigm. Because I'm threatened and I feel hurt because you don't see me. Escalates out of control. Whew. So God's got two ways that he deals with it, but he still has to do something with it. He forgives is his primary way of dealing with it. So let's look at that. When God forgives, he actually lifts the burden of our sin and carries it away. So many times we've heard a gospel preached that makes this deal about God dealing with sin as a transaction, a legal transaction. It's never, ever been about a legal transaction. It's actually been about God bearing our burdens and taking them from us. This phrase, carrying Avon, is a common Hebrew phrase in the Old Testament for this fact of God's forgiveness. Psalms 32, the psalmist says this, I didn't hide my Avon, but confessed it, and you carried the Avon of my sin. God actually forgives people by taking responsibility for their Avon. Not just the thing that you did, but all of the broken consequences of it. It's like he comes and he lifts it off of you and carries it away. Now that concept might need another rubber ducky. Does anybody need a rubber duck yet? How about a clown nose? I don't know how far that went. Sorry. There you go. <laughs> oh... As an expression of covenant love, the idea of God carrying Avon means that he actually takes the punishment on himself. That's what it actually means to forgive. And that's the reality that was symbolized by the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Why, Jesus would say, go figure out what this means. It was in Hosea, the story about the prophet marrying a prostitute. I desire mercy. The whole subject matter in Hosea 6 is about repentance. It's too much of a transactional deal. That's religion itself to come up and say, I'm going to pay for this thing. The Lord's like, I don't know. It's not about payment. It's about relationship. It's about reconnection. It's about doing something with the fact that you've got this offense here that needs to be dealt with. Think about the great day of atonement. 
It's a twofold picture of God covering sin and bearing it away. You take the two goats. One, it was for the sins of the nation. One, the blood would be sprinkled on the mercy seat or the cover of atonement. And the other one, they would figuratively place, confess, confession, symbol of repentance, confess the sins of the nation onto the goat, and then they would run it off a cliff so it could never come back to the camp. Separating them from their mess and cleaning it up. Animals could never atone. The blood of bulls and goats, Hebrews said, could never be a real sacrifice for sins because that's not what he's after. Y'all doing okay? All right, we're about to switch gears here. Get to the point. You're like, I thought we were talking about mercy. Y'all about ready to throw the flag up. Mercy. The new covenant of forgiveness that we walk in, and I thought about going into all the five covenants, but that's too much for today. But it opens the door to our total transformation, and that's what God is actually into. See, if, our, if we're about behavior modification, all we do is stay in the punishment paradigm because we believe about ourselves that we deserve punishment, and so does everybody else that screws up. God's not interested in that. He's interested in connection. He's interested in us actually getting set free and living the life just like Jesus. Connected to the Father with complete trust. Has anybody ever been bothered by the story in the Old Testament of Abraham offering up Isaac? Why God would ask him to offer his son? And he goes through the whole ordeal. See, God had developed a relationship with Abraham and he was testing him just to see, what do you think about me? You think I would actually do that? He got real close. The Lord said, no, 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 no. The angel said, no, don't, don't harm the lad. God's made something for you. And there was a ram in the thicket. Now I know that you trust me. Now I know that you know who I am, that I would never do that. And yet we build theologies and systems around this idea that blood has to be spilt because there's a payment that has to be made and not understanding what that actually means. Sin doesn't separate us from God in the way that we typically think. When we sin, God doesn't turn his face from us. But in the deception of sin, we imagine that he does. God has never turned his face from you. Never. Never. When Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, Eli, Eli, Sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He entered into our brokenness. He he carried our Avon. He felt what we feel. The Father didn't take his eyes off of him. It was his perception because he stepped into what we experience. And he took that for us. We love Isaiah 53 that he bore our sickness and our disease that he took the stripes for us. But it starts off saying, we esteemed him stricken and we assumed that God did this to him. But that's not what happened. Sorry, you have to look up Isaiah 53. I just butchered it a little bit. But 
This imagined rejection and punishment produces the fear of punishment, which leads us to run and hide from God like Adam and Eve did in the garden. Separation from God is the false reality we end up living in by believing the enemy's lies and accusations about him. Character assassination. Believing the enemy's lies and accusations about him and ourselves. On the cross, Jesus allowed himself to enter our sin-distorted view of the Father, to feel our terror and our shame, so that he could finally expose that nightmare for what it was, an utter lie, and the truth for what it is, that nothing can separate us from the love of God. David said, David figured this stuff out. He had a relationship with God. He knew who God was. Man after his own heart. He said, though I make my bed in hell, there you are. Not that this is like some sort of excuse for sinning. It's for the reality that we are separated by the power of sin that enslaves us and causes us to lose the ability to see who God really is. Our loving Father, not the Father. Father's actually there always with outstretched arms, begging us to turn around. Jesus was not submitting to his father's punishment. Y'all got that? He was submitting to our punishment while trusting the father to bring him through the ordeal of death and back to life again. Like Abraham, do you trust me with this? Abraham told his servants before he walked off, we'll be right back. Yet God told him to go make a sacrifice out of Isaac. The fulfillment of his promise. Sometimes the Lord would have a sacrifice. Be ready to trust him more than the fulfillment of some promise that he gave us. Because if he said he's going to do what he's going to do, it's, it's a done deal. No matter what it looks like. Ah. Jesus was not submitting to his father's punishment, but to ours while trusting the Father to bring him through the ordeal of death and back to life again. Unlike Adam and Eve in the garden, he trusted fully in the goodness of his Father to the end. And his faith was rewarded. The Father brought him up out of the grave. Some of you all need a rubber ducky. That's probably not the way you've heard it before. But it's true. God has never turned His face from you. He never will. I hadn't even collaborated with Emily. I saw it this morning. I went, that's the emphasis. God has never turned His face from you. Our sin distorts us for seeing who He really is, who we are, who each other are. Here's a note on hell. Last week I made a statement that might have rocked you a little bit. I said, no one's going to hell for what they've done. But only people go to hell for not receiving the outstretched arms of the Father that is constantly pursuing after them. 
the provision made through Jesus Christ that is not taken advantage of is the only reason why anybody's going to go to hell. Despite all God has done to free us from slavery to sin and punishment, we could still choose to stay locked eternally in the darkness of the punishment paradigm. And often we do. And we call it religion or holiness or whatever. Sometimes being religious is worst about this. That's why he was hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and confronting the religious people, the custodians of the old covenant. Addicted to our victimhood, vengeance, shame, fear, control, and self-preservation. Unless we choose the path of repentance, we are choosing a lifetime of punishment over a life of no punishment in the new covenant. We are actually choosing hell rather than heaven. See, no one's going to go to hell that's like, no, please don't send me to hell. I don't want to be there. People going to hell are people that want to be there. They want to isolate. They want to blame. They want to stay in their victimhood. They want to not allow the Lord to touch them and heal them and bring them into relationship. No one seeking relationship with God is going to go to hell. Nobody that doesn't want to be there is going to be there. I think some folks are in hell already. We call it narcissism or sociopath. People that are so ate up with their right and everybody else is wrong that they've cut themselves off from the rest of the world. I remember in the height of my rebellion, I didn't know any of these terms, but I remember feeling it. I was like, the moment that someone doesn't love me, I am done. Like done for good, done. Because I'd cut everybody out of my life by blaming everybody else for all of my problems. Locking them in my little prison, in my punishment paradigm. But look, we're all in the process of allowing God to dismantle the lies and the fear and the selfishness of the punishment paradigm in our hearts, informing our hearts of flesh so that we can love like He loves. We're all learning how to let fear be driven out by love and allowing the Lord to retrain our hearts to choose connection over self-preservation. Any mode of religion that's about self-preservation, that's why I tell you that if we preach a gospel that the goal is making it to heaven and escaping wrath, all we're doing is continuing this punishment paradigm. Some people may go, oh, is he saying there's no hell? No, I'm saying there's hell. I'm saying some people are already there. And there is a day when Christ will return. He'll sort all this out. Hallelujah. Not that I want anybody to be punished. That's not it. I'm just ready to see it all sorted out. But we could start sorting it out right here and it starts, starts with me. So back to the topic du jour. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. If we do not forgive others, we are stepping out from the covering of the new covenant, forfeiting our own forgiveness and coming back under condemnation and aligning ourselves with the punishment paradigm 
in the enemy who empowers that. That's why the Lord says even to victims, the downtrodden, everybody needs to repent. Get that poison out from under your skin. The real tragedy is not that we stumble and fall, make a mess and are punished. It's that we continue to remain enslaved to the punishment paradigm because we don't encounter the invitation to be delivered from fear of punishment, shame, and the whole hopeless project of self-preservation in the one place that exists to offer that invitation, and that's the body of Christ. Guys, what are we doing? This is the ministry of reconciliation. You know, all all of our trajectory, all of the assignment that we have in God as we've established already is this continuing on in the kingdom of God as we embrace it, continuing on the ministry and mission of Jesus. And as a charismatic church, we want to do the stuff. Who wants to do the stuff? Who wants to see miracles? Who wants to see lives changed? Who wants to see the world glorifying God? The knowledge of the glory of God would cover the earth as the water covers the sea. That's what we're after. What happens through us, the mission of the church is to carry on Jesus' own mission and ministry. And so you guys, why don't we stand up? Jesus is the anointed one. And we talk a lot about the anointing. Isaiah 61, I have you guys say this all the time, and why don't we do it again? I think we need this on a regular basis, but the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. And what? To the release of captives and those who are in the prisons. The opening up of the prison doors. Listen, we can't walk in the anointing and the power of God if we have this dungeon in our own life that is full of prisoners. The prisoners that we're called to set free are the ones that we have locked up in our own prison through unforgiveness. The Lord's wanting us to embrace Him and embrace the love of the Father so that we can actually flow in it and give it to other people. But if we have a dungeon full of prisoners, we're already shooting ourselves in the foot. Very counterproductive. Matthew 6, 14 and 15 says this, but if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your... Father, forgive you your trespasses. It sounds like crazy talk. Like, I'm enjoying all this love and forgiveness from God. Wait a minute. He says, I got to forgive too. You realize that where that's said is the Lord's model prayer that starts with your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He addresses three things. Heaven come and earth. His will being done on earth was what that means. Our daily bread, our needs, and forgiving. 
It's like food and drink. I mean, you need this more than you think. It's just as important as the kingdom coming. Is that we walk in a lifestyle of forgiving. Okay, so what do we do about it? Remember when Peter said, Lord, how many times am I supposed to forgive my brother? How many times are we supposed to pray like this? It's all the time. Repentance, getting right, getting open, getting clear, getting stuff off, getting the poison out is something we got to do all the time, daily. You know, I had some traumatic things happen to me, even as a pastor here. And I was just having a really rough time. And I felt the spiraling effect of Avon. Watched relationships break up and watched things happening. And I had to go see a trauma therapist about my relationship with someone that had wounded me. I was so focused on the trauma I was experiencing, I didn't even realize that, hey, why don't you try forgiving that person? I honestly didn't think that I had unforgiveness. Like, I didn't process that mentally. I was just traumatized by the encounter that I had with someone. And the Lord spoke that to me while I was on the way to the lake. He said, why don't you try forgiving that person? You know, there's, it's, it's real clear that he says, it's your day. Yeah, there's the, the nail being popped. But it's real clear that it's in prayer that we can start this. If you're intimidated by, oh man, what's he telling me to do? I got to go talk to my father's grave or whatever. Or go have some scary confrontation. It starts with what's going on in our heart. And we can do that real simple. That's right. To actually go, oh Lord, I'm sorry, I repent for my frustration, my anger, my aggravation with this person. Lord, I'm asking that I I release them. It's that easy. I release them. I open the prison door and I let them out. They don't owe me anything. And I bless them. Lord, I pray that you would bring them into the fullness of your will and your desire for their life. That they would have a good life. That this offense that hurt me, Lord, that you would give them freedom from it themselves. Something to that effect. Sounds like, forgive us our trespasses, Lord, as we forgive those who trespass against us. But often we're so caught up in it that we don't realize that it's even going on. It amazed me. Within minutes, my phone started ringing and stuff started getting right in my world. Within minutes. And I went, oh my gosh, I'm a preacher. I'm supposed to know that. (laughs) But it just caught me off guard. And that's the way offense and violations happen. Because other people's Avon spills out and it gets all over. It makes a mess. Danny talks about it being like a bucket of paint that was spilled. And who's going to clean up the mess? Repentance is doing the work of cleaning it up. That's the difference between discipline of the Lord and punishment. God's got no punishment for you unless... That's how you turn it into. You could be discipline or it could be punishment. And his discipline is always with love. Always with the heart of mercy. And all he asks is that we live in the flow of that. Get rid of the hamster wheel of punishment and get in the flow, the cycle of the love of God.
So why don't we just take a minute, take inventory. Holy Spirit, I know you're working. I know you're moving. Right now, you know what I'm talking about. He's speaking to you. There's someone that has done you wrong. That you need to just take a few minutes and just purge. Release them in the love of God. It'll change your life. It could change your life right now. Disastrous effects of things that are affecting you, that are messing up other areas of your life. You have got to know that there's probably someone's Avon that the Lord wants to pick up and carry away from you. As often as we think about daily bread, daily sustenance, we also need to think about offloading our need to punish somebody. Amen? Minister team, if y'all could come up front. And you guys realize we have a freedom ministry team available here. You can go to the church center app. If you're like, John, I'm st- it's like ripping off a Band-Aid and I'm afraid what's going to happen when I pull that off. I don't know that I want to do that. I don't know how to do that. We have wonderful, loving people here that are trained in what we call inner healing freedom ministry. So you can go to the Church Center app and, and find the freedom ministry tab and s- schedule an appointment. Highly recommend that. They will reconnect you to yourself, reconnect you to the Lord, and give you the power to reconnect to others. Kind of like the last one. I think that this is a holy moment where you have the opportunity to get as much or as little as you want. You can get as free as you want to be. See, Matthew's laid out on the floor. He's going for it. It's okay. We love each other here. We're family. If you you need a moment, there's plenty of carpet. We've got lots of carpet up here. You could just speak to God. Let somebody help you pray if you need that. And why don't we just take a few minutes and just deal with it? Thank you, Lord. Some of the things we encounter in life, you may be sitting there going, that just ticks me off. I'm just ticked. Wasn't right. That's the thing. I'm thinking of Star Wars, but it may mess up this reverent moment. It is so hard to watch people 
torture themselves in unforgiveness. Broken relationships, stuff that happened 30 years ago, and people just unable and unwilling to allow the Lord to come in with His hand and touch that spot. You're not, you're not built. Can I just say that? You are not built to carry your Avon. We thank you that you've always pursued us. You've never turned your face from us. Thank you for your relationship with Jesus that we get to step into as sons and daughters indwelt with the living God. The whole point of this, Lord, to have this trust and this loving relationship where there's no separation. Jesus, you are our hero. You are the great burden bearer, the suffering servant of Isaiah. You have plowed through here with the bulldozer of your love scooping up our burdens and our brokenness, carrying them away from us as an offering for our sin. Thank you for encountering all of that brokenness, Lord. Lord, give us the grace to trust you, to step into this place, Lord, of vulnerability, walk out a lifestyle of healing and forgiveness. Thank you for listening to the Consumed Church weekly podcast. This entire service and others can be viewed on our Facebook and YouTube channels. If you would like to partner with us in raising the next generation of kingdom bringers, you can do so at theconsumedchurch.com slash give.